Well, let's take a Bible and open it together to 2 Samuel chapter 13 in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a copy of the Bible that you can borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 223, page 223 in our copy of the Bible to begin with this morning, or 2 Samuel chapter 13 in your copy of the Bible. Now, folks, it's no secret that we live in a sexually supercharged world. I mean, Madison Avenue uses sex to sell everything from cars to beer. Uh, you can't even turn on the radio or television, it seems, anymore without being assaulted with sexual themes from soap operas and Jerry Springer all the way to the wildly popular young adult show Love Line, where kids call in with sexual questions so explicit that it would make Sigmund Freud blush. Uh, but it's not just about television and radio. It's also about real lives. I'll bet you every one of us here knows somebody whose marriage, whose family, or whose personal life is in shambles today because of sexual sin or sexual infidelity. And, and, and in light of this, it should come as no surprise to us that uh, when it comes to a force so potent and so explosive and so powerful as sex, that God would have something to say in the Bible about a force like this. And He does. And we want to talk about that today, growing out of the passage that we're going to look, out, look at. Now, I might just add, what I'm going to say today is not just for teenagers and young adults. My mom, after my dad passed away, was almost 60 years old. And she moved in and lived with a man for almost a year before she finally married him and he became my stepfather. And the principles I'm going to share today apply just as much to my mother at 60 as they do to kids at 16. So this is for all of us. Now, one other thing I should say before we start, this message is PG-13. So if you've got somebody here, a young person, that you may not want to have to answer a lot of questions you're not ready to answer yet, this is your moment to take them out and take them to a children's class while I'm doing a little bit of background and then rejoin us. But I just thought I should warn you. Okay. Now, and, and I'm not... Listen, this, the point of this is not sensationalism. The world is in our face with its view of sex. And the mistake that we as Christians have made is we have not been in people's faces with God's view of sex in the same way. So that's what we're going to do. Now, let's look at the chapter. A little bit of background. Remember, David uh, had committed sin with Bathsheba. And as a result of that, what happened is God said, there are three consequences I'm going to lay on you, David. And one of those was, the sword will never depart from your house, David. And what God meant by that is, there would be constant turmoil and crisis in David's family the rest of David's life. Here in chapter 13, we're going to see that begin. Verse 1. In the course of time, time, Amnon, a son of David, fell in love with Tamar, who was the beautiful sister of Absalom, another son of David. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how many wives David had, but he had a lot. And each of them had children. And we learn about three of those children here, Amnon, who was the son of David by one wife, and Absalom and Tamar, who were the uh, sons and, uh, son and daughter of David by a different wife. And the Bible says that Amnon developed a romantic interest in his half-sister Tamar. Verse 2, Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. She was a godly gal, and what this means is there was no real opportunity for him to get her alone into a compromising situation where he could pursue his romantic interest towards her. She kept her guard up pretty good, what the Bible's saying here. Now, let me summarize. 
his cousin, Amnon's cousin, comes and says, I'll tell you what to do, man. He said, what you do is pretend like you're sick. When your dad wants to know, when the king wants to know what he can do to make you feel better, tell him to send your half-sister Tamar in and let her make some food for you and take care of you, and that way you can isolate her and get her alone. So he does that. Skip down with me, if you would, to verse 9. And when she came, Amnon said, send everybody out of here. So everybody left. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the food in, but when she took it into him, verse 11, he grabbed her and he said to her, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't do this, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I go to get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please, instead, speak to the king. And he will not keep me from being married to you. Now, Tamar, being a godly young gal, says to, to, to Amnon, don't do this. This is wrong. Instead, I've got a great suggestion. Go to our father, the king, and ask to marry me. Now, folks, well, you should know that in the ancient Near East at this time, marriages between people in the same family like this were both common and acceptable. So what Tamar was suggesting was a very reasonable course of action. She said to her brother, her half-brother, hey, let's do this right, man. Don't do it like this. Let's get married. I'll marry you. We'll do it right. Well, verse 14, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then look what happens. Then Amnon hated her, the Bible says, with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get out of here. The literal translation of the Hebrew goes like this, and the love with which Amnon had, had loved her became far less than the hate with which he now hated her. He said, well, now, Lon, that makes no sense. How could deep love like this turn to deep hate so quickly? The answer is, friends, it didn't. What Amnon had for Tamar never was deep love. It might have been infatuation. It might have been physical attraction. It might have been chemistry. It might have been just raw lust. But it wasn't love. You say, oh, yeah, well, you're so smart. How do you know that? Well, I know that because of what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. It says love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love always protects. Raping somebody is not protecting somebody. Raping somebody is not being patient and kind with somebody. Raping somebody is becoming rude and self-seeking with another person. He didn't love this girl. This wasn't love, it was just sex. And it was sex used in a way that God never intended sex to be used. And friends, whenever sex is used in ways that God says not to use it, the result is always the same. People get hurt. And that's what happened here. Watch. Verse 16. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her and he called to his personal servant and he said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant threw her out and bolted the door. Verse 19. And Tamar put ashes on her head and she tore her robe as a sign of mourning and grief. And she went through the city with her hand on her head, weeping as she went. I mean, he devastated this girl. This girl had what we could call today a nervous breakdown. 
And the Bible says that she spent, look at the end of verse 20, she spent her life living in her brother's house, a desolate woman. It's entirely possible based on what the Bible says here, this woman never got married, that she never recovered from this. And that doesn't stop there though, because verse 22, Absalom, her full brother, never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. But he hated Amnon because Amnon had disgraced his sister Tamar. And we're going to stop here right now, but friends, in the weeks to come, we're going to see this is not the end of this. We just heard the beginning of this. This is going to turn into a situation that is going to destroy David's family and the reverberations of what happened here are going to go on for years in David's family. Sex damaged these people. Sex used in a way that God said it shouldn't have been used. Not only hurt Tamar, not only hurt Amnon, not only hurt the immediate people around, but damaged the entire nation of Israel before it was over. Now, that's as far as we want to go in the passage, but it leads us to ask our most important question. And you know what that question is. Ready? One, two, three. That's wonderful. You say, Lon, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I mean, you know, I don't rape people. I don't do this kind of nasty stuff. I mean, so what does this have to do with me? Well, we're not talking about rape here. We're talking about sex. Sex used in ways God says not to use it. You know, there's probably not American alive who doesn't know the name Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner established Playboy, the Playboy Empire. And today the Playboy Empire is huge. But the Playboy Empire all operates, is all driven by a monolithic, singular philosophy, by one simple idea. And that idea is sex is to be enjoyed without any rules, without any regulations, without any boundaries at all. Now, I've often thought if God ever had a chance to have a personal conversation with Hugh Hefner, wonder what he would say to Hugh Hefner about Hugh's position on all this. Well, think about it. What would God say to him? I, I believe God would say two things to Hugh Hefner. The first thing I believe God would say to him is, Hugh, you're right. You're right, man. Sex is a wonderful thing. You're absolutely right. Remember, as a matter of fact, Hugh, I'm the guy who invented it. When I told the human race, be fruitful and multiply, there ain't but one way to do that. And I commanded them to do it. Now, let's be honest. God could have made the human race procreate any way he wanted to. I mean, we could all go... And it's two of us. I mean, we, you know, and you go, well, there goes Renee again. Um, but that's not how God chose to do it. God chose to do it with sex. And he made sex for that purpose. He invented it. God is an advocate of sex. He commands us to have sex. Be fruitful and multiply. But you know, it's not just that. It's not just that God is pleased with sex as a way of procreating. The truth of the matter is, God is pleased with sex. I want to show you this. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5. If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 452. 452, Proverbs chapter 5. And you know, the idea when it comes to sex with a lot of people in our world is that God is a cosmic killjoy. But friends, nothing could be farther from the truth. Look right here in Proverbs chapter 5 what it says. God in the Bible. It says in verse 18, May you rejoice with the wife of your youth, a loving doe and a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you at all times. And may you ever be captivated. The word literally means intoxicated. May you be drunk by her love. God is talking here about a man's sexual relationship with his wife 
about a husband and wife really getting into it sexually. And God makes it clear here that this pleases Him, that He's all for this. He wants it to be so much fun. It's like getting drunk together, like being completely taken away with one another. This comes as a great shock to many people, that God likes and is in favor of sex. Friends, if you have children, let me tell you something. Don't you ever tell them or even imply to them that sex is dirty, that sex is bad, that sex is wrong. I know what you're trying to do. We all know what you're trying to do, but don't do it this way. Because they'll believe you. And they will grow up believing that and they will end up having a curse that you laid on them. They will spend much of their adult life in therapy trying to get over. You tell them that sex is good, that sex is beautiful that sex is pleasing to God, that God is all for sex, so long as it's used the way God says it should be used. Which brings me to the second thing that God would say to Hugh Hefner. Not only would he say, Hugh, you're right, sex is a great thing, but then he would say, but you know, Hugh, you're wrong. Sex has rules. Sex has boundaries that I put on it. And what are those boundaries? Hebrews 13, verse 4 Marriage is honorable and the marriage bed is undefiled, is pure. God's boundary for sex is marriage. And there's a good reason for this. The reason is because of what marriage is intended to be by God. And a man, Genesis 2, shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two of them shall become one flesh. This is, the, this is what marriage is all about. Two people becoming one flesh. And folks, this one flesh experience finds its highest expression in the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, it's true that children are also born of that sexual relationship, but that function is totally secondary. The primary function of sex is to enrich and give expression to this one flesh experience to pull the two people in this experience together, to enrich their communication, to deepen their intimacy, to help them get to know one another in a way that nobody else on the face of the earth knows that other person. Think about it for a minute. Sex is the only thing that a husband and wife do for each other that God allows nobody else to do for them. Think about it. If somebody else wants to wash your spouse's car, God says, okay. If somebody else wants to fix a meal for your spouse, God says, okay. If somebody else wants to vacuum the floor for your spouse, God says, okay. If somebody else wants to floss your spouse's teeth, God says, okay, whatever. But God says, nobody else is to have sex with your spouse. Because nobody else is in a one flesh experience with that person but you. And that's something that belongs to just the two of you. Because it lies at the heart of what we being, what one flesh is all about. Friends, marriage is the boundary that God has set up for sex. And used inside that boundary, sex is a wonderful thing, a beneficial thing. Used outside that boundary, it's like a California wildfire that just hurts people and damages relationships, just as it did in the case of Amnon and Tamar. You say, well, now, wait a minute, time, just a second. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take it this simple. I mean, I've got some real objections to this. I just, I'm, you're not going to give it to me as simplistic as that. I've got some things I, I want to react and say. Well, wonderful. Go ahead. Here's the first thing I want to say to that, all that, Lon. Lon, it's like Tina Turner said. What's love got to do with it? 
You know, I mean, sex, dogs do it, cats do it, monkeys do it. It's environmental, for goodness sake. They don't lay any moral overtones on it. They don't have any right or wrong on it. They just do it. So why do we, why are we the only part of the animal kingdom that want to lay moral do's and don'ts on something that everybody else puts no moral do's and don'ts on? Now, friends, this is a very revealing question. What it says is that somebody's operating on a worldview that's centered in evolution. Because evolution says, hey, we're nothing more than highly developed monkeys and cats and dogs. So if cats and dogs and monkeys don't put any moral overtones on sex, why should we? But this is not the worldview of the Bible. The worldview of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, is that we are made as human beings in the image of God. We are not the same as monkeys and cats and dogs. And that we have a spirit that can connect with God in relationship with monkeys and cats and dogs can't do. And we have a conscience that testifies to us we are moral beings which monkeys and cats and dogs don't have. And as a result, yes, there are moral overtones and boundaries on sex because we are not just a highly developed part of the animal kingdom. We are made in the image of God. We are moral beings and there are moral right and wrongs to our world. Which means when it comes to sex, love and marriage have everything to do with it. You say, well, all right, well, Lon, my second thought is I agree. Love is important. You're right. But we're in love. We're in love. So there's nothing wrong with it, right? Well, my response to that is this. If you're in love enough to have sex, you're, you're in love enough to get married. And if you're not in love enough yet to get married, you're not in love enough yet to have sex. You go, okay, okay. But, but Lon, we are planning to get married. We are. But we just want to live together first, and we just want to sleep together first to make sure we're compatible. You know, Lon, there's a lot of divorce in the world. I mean, people get divorced all the time. Marriages don't make it. We just want to make sure before we jump in and do this thing, we got a decent shot at making it. So we live together first to see if we're compatible. Hey, I got news for you, friends. Compatibility is a figment of Walt Disney's imagination. It doesn't exist. You can't take two sinners and put them under one roof and have them be compatible. We're all too selfish. We're all too self-centered. We're all too self-directed. Brenda and I have been married for 25 years this month, and we are still totally incompatible. Completely. Totally. And the reason we've made it 25 years has nothing to do with being compatible. It has to do with the other C word, the word commitment. When we got married, we said, it's you and me and Jesus Christ and the three of us are going to figure out a way. We're going to make this work together as a Christian couple. And that's the reason we're together. So when it comes to you and your boyfriend or you and your girlfriend living together and having sex to see if you're compatible, I can save you the trouble. You're not. You're not. But if you love each other and you love Jesus Christ and you're willing to make Him the Lord of your marriage, you can still have a successful home and a marriage. Besides, sex and living together before you marry doesn't increase your odds anyway. I got an interesting article out of USA Today, February of this year, that says live-in couples miss out on wedded bliss. Let me read you just a little bit of it. Couples who live together before marriage are about 48% more likely to divorce than those who don't, says the author of a new review of research on cohabitation. The study also finds that living together increases risk of domestic violence as well. Despite what some couples may think, the overwhelming evidence 
is that living together is not a good way to prepare for marriage or to avoid divorce, says a Rutgers University sociologist who did the study. And he concludes the article by saying that when it comes to living together, it's simply not marriage friendly. Isn't it wonderful to see that secular research is finally catching up with the Bible? Isn't that wonderful? He said, well, Lon, wait a minute. You don't understand, though. Forget marriage. Sex enriches relationships. So a dating relationship is enriched if we have sex. I'm sorry, I disagree. I think sex complicates dating relationships, my friends. Because what happens is once sex gets involved, the physical begins to take over your relationship. And the really important things that you ought to be evaluating in one another, like character, like integrity, like spiritual walk, like shared values, like communication skills, like conflict resolution skills, like your ability to forgive each other, all of these things that are central to establishing a successful marriage, they all go out the window because sex takes over. And the result is it's really easy to make a bad choice about a marriage partner because you're not, you're not concentrating on the right things. And even if you do break up, once sex has gotten involved, there's guilt and there's hurt. There's embarrassment. You walk away like two wounded people. Listen, you want to really enhance a dating relationship? Keep sex out of it. You want to really make a dating life that's, uh, have a dating life that's less complicated and less painful and less risky of ending up in a bad marriage? Keep sex out of it. You say, but Lon, wait a minute. What's the big deal about this anyway? I mean, it's just sex. What's the big deal? Well, friends, the big deal is baggage. Sex used in a way God says it shouldn't makes baggage. And baggage makes trouble. You know, I have people come in my office all the time, young married couples, and I have, I've had so many of these, I could script this and just hand them the script. And they could read the script, and it would work. And here's what they say. They sit down, the man talks, the woman doesn't. The man says, you know, before we were married, we had fabulous sex. It was wonderful. Then we got married. And now we're legal, and our sex is terrible. It's awful. It's like she became frigid all of a sudden or something. And, of course, by this time, usually the lady's in tears. And he says, we don't understand what's wrong. We don't understand what the problem is. What is wrong with us? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong. It's the baggage they brought into marriage because of what they did before. See, that woman knew if she was a woman who, went to, who, who, who knows that Jesus Christ, she knew that sleeping together was wrong. And it produced guilt. But rather than dealing with it, what she did is she stuffed it. She said, well, we're going to get married anyway. It's really okay. I mean, it's not that big a deal. And she just stuffed it. But folks, you can't stuff guilt forever. It's going to come roaring back. And it does after you get married. And this lady begins thinking when she's got time on her hands, how could he do this to me? How could he disrespect me like this? How in the world could he let this happen? What kind of spiritual leader is he? How can I trust him to be the spiritual leader and mentor for my children in my home when I couldn't, when he couldn't even keep one simple biblical injunction before we got married? And I'll tell you guys, you get a wife thinking like that about her husband, you're going to have sexual problems. If you're here today and you're a guy, you say, what are you picking on the guys for? It takes two to tango, Lon. I know. But you know what, folks? I and God and your wife all believe that the man is responsible for setting the spiritual tone and taking the spiritual leadership in his home. And as a result of that, I hold a guy primarily responsible. I say to guys in dating relationships, I'm holding you responsible 
for making this relationship work the way God says it ought to. Yes, the, the, your girlfriend needs to be part of this, but if you can't hold a dating relationship to where God says it ought to be, how in the world are you going to run a marriage? She's watching you, man. She's watching you. And she's evaluating too. And if you let your relationship go too far when you were dating and you're married now, let me tell you something, man. You owe it to that woman to go back and ask her forgiveness because you wronged her. You did. And in her spirit, she feels that way. And the only way to fix this problem, you say, Lon, is this problem fixable that you were talking about in your office? Oh, yeah. By going back and asking and exchanging forgiveness, it's fixable. But why do this to yourself? Why put yourself through this? Men, you need to go back and ask your wives to forgive you. And this is why I tell guys that the biggest favor you can do for yourself is to keep your hands off that woman until you get married. Let her walk down the aisle feeling good and right and clean and pure about herself. And after you get married, treat her with dignity and with respect. And if you will do that, I promise you, you will have a sex life that will blow the street lights out in front of your house. It'll be fine. He said, no, Lon, you don't understand. Um, church ladies don't have those kind of sex lives. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I would like to enter into evidence an article from Rolling Stone magazine uh, entitled The Joy of No Sex. Listen to what it says. It says, in 1994, the University of Chicago released the most authoritative survey to date on American sexual behavior. According to the survey, the most sexually satisfied people in the country are not sadomasochistic aficionados in New York City or free love fanatics in San Francisco. The people getting the most joy, the most pleasure, and the most ecstasy from sex are Christian women in monogamous marriages. They're physically and emotionally more satisfied with their partners, and they are more likely to have an orgasm every time they have sex than are any other people surveyed in America. And then there's a related article that I cut out of USA Today entitled, The Revenge of the Church Ladies. <laughs> the name of the article, The Revenge of the Church Ladies. And listen to what this article says about ladies who save it for marriage. Listen to what it says. It says, that's right, several studies, including the one we already noticed here in, in, uh, in um, 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 Rolling Stone and a Red Book study, several studies say that women who engage in early sexual activity and those who've had multiple partners are less likely, less likely, to express satisfaction with their sex lives after marriage than women who entered marriage with little or no sexual baggage. It goes on to say that what this means is that saving sex for marriage pays considerable dividends. Couples not involved before marriage and faithful during marriage appear to be more satisfied with their sex lives than those who were involved sexually before they got married. Now, friends, this is secular research. This is not the Bible. This is secular research that keeps saying to us, finally, you know what? God's been right all along. He's been right the whole time. You say, well, I only got one more thing to ask. What if I've already blown it? I mean, you know, Lon, it's wonderful what you're saying, but I, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm the person you're closing the barn doors out after the horse is out sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? 
And I just figured, well, you know, I, it's too late for me. I've already given it away, so I might as well keep on giving it away. I mean, you know, I'm, I've blown it already. It's too late. Friends, let me say something to you. Ladies, it is never too late for you to reclaim your integrity and take control of your life back. It's never too late for that. God is a God of forgiveness. As far as the east is from the west, that's how God, far God takes our sin away from us. God is a God of cleansing. He wipes the slate clean. And I've learned, because I had a pretty sordid past before I became a Christian, I have learned God wipes that slate clean and makes you feel like a virgin all over again if you'll let Him. There's real forgiveness here. Don't you say to yourself, well, it's too late for me. You know, I've already blown it. I might as well just keep giving it away. Don't you do that. You say, I am going to take control of my life back, and with God's help, by the grace of God, I'm going to reestablish my integrity beginning now. And God is going to clean my slate, and I'm going to be like a virgin in the sight of God from this point on. You know, if you're here and you're not, not in a dating relationship right now, I hope what we've shared today is helpful to you in the sense that when you get involved, you know where the boundaries are. If you're here today and you're in a dating relationship, but you're kind of on the edge and you haven't gone too far yet, but you know, you I mean things are not good, I hope you'll sit down with your, your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you'll say, now look, if the two of us cannot work together and make this happen as a team and keep one simple biblical injunction together. What in the world makes us think we can get married and pull off a marriage? So this is a great test for us. Let's see if we can do it. If you're in a dating relationship where you've already gone way too far, I want to challenge you to have a course correction and to sit down and say, we're going to stop it, we're going to pull back, and to say to that young man in that relationship, I'm holding you responsible to make sure we keep God's standards. And if I can't trust you to do that, if you can't be successful doing that, i got to tell you, I've got real doubts whether I can trust you to be the spiritual leader of a marriage and a home. So take the ball, George, and run. Let's see what happens. And if you're married and you went too far together before you were married, I want together before you men. Go back. Seek your wife's forgiveness. She'll give it to you. That's the way you clean that guilt out. Friends, God has a position on sex. If you want safe sex, God will tell you how to have it. Not just safe sex in terms of getting a disease or safe sex in terms of getting somebody pregnant, but how to have safe sex so you don't hurt people, you don't wound people, you don't damage people, and you don't hurt, wound, and damage yourself. How do you do it? You do it God's way. Inside marriage. And I hope that us taking this and making it right out front, man, we just put it, here it is. This is what God says. I hope that will help everybody here. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment if you're here and um, whether you're a dating couple or whether you're married and if there's some things you need to ask God to help you with, if there's some course corrections you need to make, why don't you take just a moment and let's ask God to do that. Thank you, Father, for talking to us today about things that are down to earth, real life, right where we live. Thanks for talking to us about how to use sex in a way that's safe. For reminding us it's like dynamite when it comes to human relationships and for teaching us the principles so we don't blow our hands and our arms off using it. Father, 
there are many of us here who need course correction. There are many of us here who need to set some better boundaries for our lives. And my prayer is that you would use what we've talked about today to shake, rattle, and roll some people's worlds. And Lord, bring them to the place where they're willing to take whatever steps are necessary to do it the way you tell us to. Remind us, God, we will never be sorry for handling sex or anything else the way you instruct. So give us the courage we need. God, give us the strength we need by your Spirit inside of us to be able to do it your way. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.